How about we pray once more? We have come to your banqueting table. We've come in search of a meal because we know we need to be fed. And though we have hungers aplenty, many of which we do not understand, many of which perplex us, if not beset us, we would ask that you would feed us with what is good, what will last, what is savory, but which might at first seem bitter. Help us to hear you. Help me to speak with what is clear and otherwise get out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Is this thing on? Feast your eyes on a death match. <clears throat> That's a toad. You've seen one of those before. Your kids may catch them, bring them home. Look! Right? In its mouth is something called an epimus beetle. And it would look like that the death match is already over because that beetle seems to have met the business end of the toad pretty quickly. Truth be told, the beetle wanted to be found. In fact, it whips its feelers up in a frenzy in order to attract attention to itself so that the toad thinks, well, that's going to be easy. And predator meets prey. So you think, as soon as that larvae that epimus beetle gets inside of that frog or attaches it, it begins to secrete an enzyme that begins to dissolve the flesh of the toad such that the toad then spits it out. Oh, but it's too late because then the beetle said, oh no, we're in this for the long run, baby. And he attaches to the bottom of his skin and begins to secrete that enzyme again until in time, that toad is no more than a pile of bones. Which gives you one more example of that song, Who's Zoomin' Who? That's what an epimus beetle does. It wants to be found, that it might be caught, that it might latch on, that it might feed on the one who thought he was the one feeding. That is a picture of something seeking nourishment that ends up in the end being consumed by what he's seeking to be nourished by. What he feeds on, he is fed on by. And it's a really vivid, graphic, and nasty picture of the whole thing. But friends, that is in some ways the picture of every sin. We feed on it. We think it'll serve us. We think it'll magnify us. And in the end, we're the ones that get fed on. We're the ones that get served up. And the only thing that's magnified is our sorrow in the end. That's the nature of sin. And that's the nature of our desires at times. How our desires can in some ways deceive us to our own destruction. And if we're not aware of just what happens when we follow our bliss. Something can happen and a natural desire leads to a very unnatural outcome. That is a picture of sin. That is a picture of what is our focus this morning. For the last several weeks, we've been listening to what's been known as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus goes up on a hill, and just like Moses, he sits to speak and to teach, but to point us to what is the highest good. The good that will cost us, but the good that's going to last. 
And every week we're challenged with this. That inasmuch as Jesus is pointing us to the highest good, we always have to understand Jesus as our greatest good in order to be inspired to that good. And that will matter. But where he's leading us this week is to talk about that one desire that feels utterly natural, that has the intimacy of body and soul contained therein, but that just like the toad, if left to its own devices, it can lead us to our own consumption. And so what we're talking about for the next two Sundays is intimacy, sexual union, that is proper to the context of marriage in which mutual trust can be established and cultivated and nurtured and fought for. And so in talking about intimacy this morning, we're recognizing that it's something that we always need to hear about on a perennial basis. And the last time we talked about this was last summer when we considered Proverbs chapter 5. And it might be ironic that it's the church talking about sex Because we've done a rather sordid job of proclaiming that which is apparently on Jesus' lips so much. But it's not that we need less of what he says, it's what we need more. And I'll just say straight up to you right now. This is a sermon I wish my daddy had told me when I was a kid. These are words and simple thoughts that I wish he'd put his shoulder around me and just say, do you ever want to talk about it? This is a line of thought that I wish somebody had kind of reasoned with me when I got to college. These are the sorts of thoughts that when you say, what would you tell to your younger self? This. This is what I would have told to my younger self. Because it would save me from a lot of regret and pain and heartbreak and confusion. And so this is a sermon as much for what I would have said to me as it is for anybody in this room. So whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Whoever needs to hear this, let them hear it. But in talking about intimacy... In these four verses, we're going to consider three things about it. What is it? What does it deserve? And what does it need? What is intimacy? What does intimacy deserve? And what does intimacy need? That's our game plan. And we're going to start from what Jesus has to say in chapter 5, starting in verse 27. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you might stand to hear. Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the fierce word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Like I said, fun. Not doing that. You probably noticed that where Jesus is going in this passage, he's mostly talking about the implications of intimacy. Like, 
the nature of intimacy as it is, what follows from it. And, and most of his words, both this week and next week, will be couched in terms of warning. But for him to say what he says, it means that we kind of need to back up a little bit. We need to flesh out, huh, if you will, the nature of intimacy. Otherwise, they're just, they're just rules that kind of live out there unmoored to anything. If we, if we don't unpack what is the nature of intimacy, then you know what? The world is right when they say that you people in the church are really fixated on what goes on between two people. We need to talk about what is the backstory of whatever Jesus is speaking of here. We need to consider what is upstream of what he has here in the way of directives. What Jesus says at the beginning of the passage is nothing other than what Moses said in the seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said, it says in Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus will go on to talk about what is at the very heart of that commandment. We'll get to the heart of it in a minute. Stay tuned. But what Jesus is suggesting here by quoting that commandment, what is in the backdrop of everything that he has to teach here about intimacy of body and soul is that intimacy is sacred. Full stop. Sacred. Now, sacred has a whole range of meanings. Um, It's at very basic, the idea of something of great value, something that ought to be cherished. In this context, it's something of great value to God. And we're going to focus on one aspect of sacredness this week and another aspect of its sacredness next week. But for now, it's this idea of having great worth, great value, and therefore worthy of great care. Um, In my household, when my kids were younger, uh, the perennial rule, the, the regular rule was we share and share alike. What's yours is mine. And yet there were times when they had received something of greater importance that one of the kids could play the card and they would say, um, um, no, 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 this one, this one is special to me, which um, in their vocabulary meant, hands off, bub, this one's mine. It was, in that sense, sacred to them, of their special care in their special purview. In a very different setting, I've mentioned to you the interview that Stephen Colbert gave about five years ago. He talked about the death of his father and his older brothers. They all died in a plane crash when Stephen Colbert was young in South Carolina, And in that interview in GQ, he said that suffering is sacred. The tears are sacred. And in that he meant, it's when you suffer that you get down into the deep reality of what you most believe. You uncover, you are faced with what is utterly true in your world And what you thought you believed is genuinely unveiled in a moment like that when you are suffering. And therefore, he said, when those moments come, all you can do is be quiet before them. To consider what they are revealing about the nature of reality. To consider how in those moments they shape you like no other moment can or will. It's sacred. You don't mess with it. You don't meddle with it. Jesus would agree wholeheartedly with people in our day who will say that intimacy is a biological, a psychological, and endocrinological effort and an act. He wouldn't dispute that. Jesus is saying, though, by this text, that intimacy of body and soul is greater than that. 
Intimacy is not encompassed by a description of its scientific features or its modes. It's greater because it's sacred. And the question is, why, why does he say that? How, and how is it sacred? I mean, he doesn't say that in this passage. He implies it. Where does he say it more explicitly? All you got to do is kind of pan out. We're in Matthew 5. If you were to read ahead in Matthew 19, there he's in a back and forth with the Pharisees, the people who know the law really well. And they're asking Jesus, on what grounds may a man divorce his wife? That's going to be our focus next week. I ask you to pray for me as I prepare that sermon. That'll be just as fun. But in that passage, their Pharisees are asking him, why, on, on what grounds may a man divorce his wife? Jesus' response to them is to take them back to the text. The text that you heard Walt read, specifically there in chapter, 20, chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In that pivotal passage, at the very beginning of the Old Testament narrative, what we're out to hear there is that marital union is more than just a physical or psychological coupling. It's encompassed by this really enigmatic phrase, the idea of being one flesh. That there is something more than just the merging of calendars and finances and addresses that occur when you enter into that kind of relationship. And to be one flesh, to cleave, that certainly includes the idea of sexual union, but it is not limited to it. It is a whole comprehensive and mysterious way of describing that which occurs when two people come together and consummate their love in that way. Jesus is saying that's, in a sense, what designates this kind of relationship as sacred. The Apostle Paul elaborates on that same theme, but in a very different context and to answer a very different question. This time, in a sense of warning. Warning about what it is that's happening when you give yourself to prostitution. And he says, straight up in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Therefore flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul's going to the mat here to say that there is something uniquely problematic about entering into that kind of relationship with someone when you are denying the sacredness of the act, when you are denying the sacredness of the bond that is formed. And it's uniquely problematic in that in denying its sacredness, you're actually desecrating yourself. And therefore, it is a word of warning. Now, right now, we need to pause and say to ourselves, Really, Paul? Really, Jesus? Because maybe most ears or eyes that are outside of this community, or maybe a lot of us who are inside this community, to be sure, sometimes in my own mind, I go, man, um, it's a biological function that helps propagate the species. That's what it is. Are we, are we getting a little uh, wrapped around a, you know, are we tightened up here? Are we, are we, Are we upset about things? Are we overselling it? Are we overhyping what this kind of union is? Shouldn't we loosen up a little bit? And it's, you know, kind of a a normal response to that, especially on the basis of the fact that, yes, this kind of union is a way to propagate the species. To be sure, it's very effective. 
But inasmuch as that is a true statement, none of us really believe that if we're honest with ourselves, even if we spout that. Now, I'm borrowing some ideas from another pastor who has thought about this for a lot longer than I have. But you know what? When you go to a wedding and there's a big celebration thereafter, you know what the celebration is not about? Um, The celebration is not two people going, yay, we're going to perpetuate the species now. Woohoo! Doing my part. (laughs) Pay it forward. Yeah. They're not. They're also not saying, oh, this is going to be awesome. Now, whenever we're both in the mood, we can both experience that rush of oxytocin. They're not celebrating that. They're celebrating something deeper that they can't even put their hand on. They can't even get their mind around. And, and that's the aspect of sacredness that I want to focus on this morning. That when it comes to talking about sexual union, you're talking about something that is more than what it first appears to be. And if you do not reckon with that reality, you miss what is true. It is more than meets the eye. For Jesus to reference Genesis 2 about being one flesh when you enter into that kind of coupling and union, he is saying it is more than what you know. And if you're not sure of that, Would you just consider for a moment how many stories and songs and poetry have been written about this kind of love? Across all genres, across all eras, this kind of love is upheld with a certain kind of bewildering excitement and and reverence, even though they might not ascribe that word to it, such that that would indicate that we really don't believe it's just about propagating the species. There is no word that rhymes with oxytocin. Except maybe the word pitocin, and that is not exactly a word we associate with arousal. And if I make my point most clear, all I want to do to you right now is read what is arguably one of the most arresting love poems in all of the Bible from the Song of Solomon. And I just want you to hear it. And at the end of it, I want you to ask yourself, Does this sound like there may be something more to this kind of union than maybe the way we think of it? You know what Song of Solomon says? Just hear it. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueted house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Tell me again that believers in God are prudes.
tell me that hookup culture gets that? Even if you don't believe in God, and many of you in this room may not, and that's great, and I'm so glad you're here. You have to admit that when you hear those words, they communicate a quality to this kind of union that makes you think, maybe there's something more to this than maybe I give it. And that's because we all maybe have this intuitive sense that there's a certain sacredness attached to it, that's inherent to it. It's more than the coupling of bodies. It's something sacred. And that, therefore, lends us to the most intuitive question that we get when we hear that that kind of union is sacred. What does it deserve? What does it deserve? It deserves care. It deserves protection. It deserves preservation. And in this passage, Jesus is going to focus what that kind of sacred union has to be protected from in terms of a counterfeit form of it. What does it have to be protected from? A counterfeit version thereof. Now, I don't know if this still happens in large cosmopolitan cities, but it was the stereotype of that day that if you walked up like a major thoroughfare in New York City and some guy came up to you and opened his jacket and showed you watches, (laughs) and he said, yeah, sorry, watches, right? And he said, it's a Rolex. You want one? That you would go, hmm, (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, Or the guy that opens up the back of his van and said, hey, you want a Gucci you would, you would say, I bet you that's a knockoff because you have 300 Gucci's there. You must be a rich man, which is why you're driving around in a Volkswagen Bug. Um, there may be something to that that makes me think that's not really what you say it is. It's a fake. Jesus is talking about a form of intimacy that is itself a fake. It's a counterfeit, and we have to protect ourselves from it. And that's why he says in verse 27 and 28, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's he saying? Every fruit has a seed. And adultery, which is the violation of a covenant between two people, that is the fruit of which lustful intent is the seed. There is never any adultery unless lust first pursues it. Lust is the seed of that fruit. And therefore, Jesus is saying, if you are only concerned with the act of adultery, but not what is the seed for it, it's like going out and pulling the tops off of weeds. In the first house, my wife and I lived up in Dallas at a duplex. We had a baby boy. We brought him home on Good Friday. His name is Seamus. And only after we brought him home, we discovered that on the side of the house, there's an oleander plant. If you know about oleander, you know about kids, they don't mix. One is lethal for the other. But if all I did was go out there and snip the leaves of the oleander plant, I'm a fool. You got to uproot that thing, otherwise the oleander leaves are going to come back. He's saying, look, adultery is your oleander leaves, but you're not really messing around with it until you get to the root of it. Lust is the root of it. So what's lust? There's the question, right? (sighs) Okay, here we go. Now take notes. What does he mean by lustful intent? The Greek word there is the word epithumeo, which if you look it up in a concordance, goes all over the place. It's in a lot of places. Jesus uses it in a variety of contexts. On the night that he has the last supper with his disciples, he says, I have deeply longed to have this supper with you. It's the same Greek word, epithumeo. It's the strong, passionate longing. And in a lot of places, it's perfectly normal and proper. But in a lot of other places, it's when there is a desire that is in excess of its really worth 
or a desire that fails to consider all sorts of other variables. It is to make yourself so singularly focused on one thing that you become blind to everything else. In the case of the toad, the toad did not think to itself before it put that beetle in its mouth, gosh, that beetle may have a family and they may depend on him. I'll forget it. The beetle, likewise, did not look at the toad and go, hmm, you know, the toad, it might be his birthday, and nobody wants to die on their birthday. No, it just wanted to eat the toad. It's singularly focused on one thing, to consume that which is before them. And to epithumeo in the wrong way is to be so singularly focused on something that you become blind to everything else. So what is lustful intent? It's not just noticing beauty in someone. It's not just feeling a kind of attraction that you can't really define it. This is lustful intent. It is to look upon someone and use your imagination to turn them into an object of desire and that alone. It is to reduce them to a means by which you might gratify yourself and forget the fullness of who they are and only to think of them in terms of how they might satisfy your desire. That's lustful intent. The problem is, though, if that's a counterfeit form of it, what do we do with it? How do we respond to it? Lust, if you will, is going after skin without any skin in the game. It is seeking a delight without any kind of devotion. It is seeking the feelings that you might associate with love, but not taking any responsibility for what love requires. That's where you're starting to creep into the idea of lustful intent. And if you want to hear something from Friedrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who kind of speaks to us about what does it mean to be a Christian and how do we think about desire and about love, he says this, our bond to Jesus Christ permits no desire without love. Unless you have skin in the game, Skin is out of limits because it's beginning to deny that which is both body and soul in a person. It is to forget that they have something that is immortal in them and seeking only that which might be gratifyingly mortal in them. Lust, therefore, is the divorce of desire from love. And therein lies the problem. Because even if we might argue, if Jesus argues that Lust is a counterfeit form of intimacy. In the moment, or maybe forever, it doesn't feel counterfeit. There's a certain gratification that goes along with it. And what do you do when everything feels just right? I referenced this article from the 1990s, back when we preached in Proverbs chapter 5 last summer. It's written by an author named Naomi Wolf. Who, who ain't no Bible-beating evangelical. But she wrote an article called The Porn Myth, identifying kind of <clears throat> where we thought pornography would take this culture when it goes, and actually what happened. And near the end of the article, she makes this striking contrast between two people she meets in the sake of her research. One is an old college friend who had become an Orthodox Jew and was married, and she went over and visited her friend, and that friend now wore her hair up, Um, in a scarf at all times. And um, it was a a friend of hers that who had always worn her hair down. It was just sort of lovely, beautiful hair. And now, as a function of her her, um, love for her husband, only her husband would see her hair down. And in the midst of that, 
uh, she was just marveling at that kind of modesty. But at the end of the essay, she contrasts that experience with her friend from college with this college kid at Northwestern. And she just kind of goes into a back and forth banter with him, asking him about his attitudes towards sexual union. And um, he answers the question when she asked him, why have sex right away? Things are always a little tense and uncomfortable when you just start seeing someone, he said. I prefer to have sex right away just to get it over with. You know, it's going to happen anyway, and, it's get rid of, get, and it gets rid of the tension. And she asks him, isn't the tension kind of fun? Uh, doesn't that also get rid of the mystery? And then he responded blankly, mystery? I don't know what you're talking about. Sex has no mystery. If there's no mystery to it, and it's just a biological function. It's just what people do. It's just an appetite. I'm hungry, I eat. And if there's no mystery, then it just feels like a counterfeit form. But here's the problem. Let your desires teach you that, tell you that, you go with that, you roll that way. You're actually setting yourself up for something that's very counterproductive to your own flourishing. And to say that, I'll borrow some language from C.S. Lewis in an article that is one of many that we posted in the resources doc this week on the website. When it comes to self-gratification, where you were only thinking about yourself, when you let lust lead, you're actually setting yourself up for something that you don't really want if you think about it. And that's why he says in a letter that he wrote to somebody back in 1956, for me, the real evil of self-gratification would be that it takes an appetite, which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another, and then it turns it back. Sends the man back into the prison of himself. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. If you let lust lead, you know what's at the center? You are. But when you think of intimacy as that which is reserved for that whom you would only want them to trust you entirely, without question, when real intimacy flows, when real intimacy follows, then they are ahead of you. They are in first position and not you. And therefore, if you let lust lead, you enter into that imprisonment of the self. And that's our biggest problem. You and I think so much of ourselves all the time. So why would we give ourselves to a practice that has all this excitement and ecstasy about it, only to tell ourselves that we're the number one? And when you enter that imprisonment of yourself, you know what you're doing? You're getting a little taste of hell. Because in hell, you're the center of your universe. And that's why Jesus offers these really stark and deliberate terms, these really stark and deliberate directives at the end of the passage. He says, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members and then your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members and then your whole body go into hell. Now that's stark. Gouging out your eye, dismembering your hand. Really? Look, you don't need eyes or hands to lust. You just need a mind and a will. And so his language there is dramatic. But he's doing a little cost-benefit analysis for us all. That the cost to you in seeking to refrain from indulging in lust will always be less than indulging in lust. And I have the articles and the statistics to prove it.
What does that look like in practice and in concrete terms? I don't know for you. It may mean by beginning by confessing it to the Lord. It may mean by confessing it to a friend. It may mean by doing everything you can to limit your access to wherever it goes. That's where it starts. It's certainly not what it finishes. And it's not really the foundation of where it all begins. But Jesus says you have to act deliberately. Because there's wisdom in it. But when you think about that, about how to act deliberately and act starkly in the spirit of where he goes, the most important thing you have to understand is motivation. What is meant to motivate your setting aside of lust and only believing that intimacy is reserved for that where the ultimate and complete trust is forged and established? Because, look, those are stark and severe words. But in reading an introduction this week, to C.S. Lewis's homage to George MacDonald, the Scottish author and theologian. He said, George MacDonald does a remarkable job of holding together two things that are true of Jesus, his tenderness and his severity. And you can never separate those two. What God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. Jesus is tender. Jesus is severe. He's never so severe that he will not be have compassion on you, but he is never so tender that he won't speak to you directly in a pointed way. You have to keep them together. And so these words have been utterly severe, but to understand any one word of Jesus, you have to understand all the words of Jesus. And therefore, I might reference two words of Jesus that might help put this word in context, one of which is what happens when that prostitute comes and breaks the party, crashes the party, and starts anointing his feet with oil. Was she out to have lustful intent with people? No, she indulged men who had lustful intent. But what was Jesus' words to her in that moment? They weren't shame. They were compassion. In that really beautiful but enigmatic passage in John chapter 7, which we're not sure, it's probably not original to John, but it sure sounds like something Jesus would do. You know what happens. That woman's caught in adultery, and she's laid there, and all these older guys start to grab their stone and getting ready to stone her there in broad daylight. And Jesus says, hey, any of you, you without sin, go ahead. Make her day. And one by one, they drop those stones. And there in her tears and in her fear, he looks at her and he says, Woman, where are they? Where are your condemners? They'd all gone. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Tenderness. Severity. And that's why we have to talk about what does NFC need? We know what it is. We hear what it deserves. What does it most need? It needs an intimate acquaintance with the one who did everything to love you, body and soul. Sexual union is one of the most vulnerable ways you can be with a human. This man made himself most vulnerable on that cross by outstretching his arms and his body that he might be ridiculed and let violence come down upon him. And therefore, he gave his whole body to rescue our whole soul. And in rescuing our whole soul, he therefore set us apart that that body, even though it turned to ash, will one day be reconstituted and reunited with that soul. He gave his whole body 
for us. His condemnation was our vindication. His obedience covered our disobedience. His love covered our hate. That's the gospel. That's what I invite you to if you've never been or believed that again this day. But it is that intimate acquaintance with the one who did not separate his concern for body and the concern for soul. He's the one we need. Why do we need him? To keep us from being foolish. So that his words might keep us from being like that toad who wants to feed on what we think will nourish us, but in the end, the way we feed only ends up consuming us. We need him that we might hear his words that we might kept from our folly. But more than that, we need to be kept from our own following our own despair. And by that I mean this. What leads us to lust? It is to despair of the possibility that we might ever think ourselves cherished. And so we take means into our own hands to somehow believe, if only for a moment, that we might be cherished. Folks, beloved, welcome guests. Jesus said to that woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He was uncompromising. But the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Yes, we might despair of ever thinking that we are cherished, but we also might despair because we have succumbed to that temptation more often than we not, maybe even this morning, and thinking that there is no sympathy for us, to which I might say to you, oh, there is. The deep, deep love of Jesus remains, even if we are in despair about how we have governed our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our lives. That's why we need to be intimately acquainted with him. Because not only does he rescue us from our folly, he rescues us from our despair. And that's why, friends, I am not going to stand up here and give you six strategies on how to fight lust. I only have one strategy. And that strategy is right out of the words of Pontius Pilate. With Jesus there, bloodied and in a robe, he said, Behold, the man. If you would wrestle with lust, you must see And savor and find beautiful the one who never separated his interest in your body and your soul. And whose sympathy is great for us in our weakness. And who gives us his spirit that we might wrestle with care. And to know that even if we have failed, his love is deep. Friends, heaven is in the details on this one. And it's been a long time since we did this, but on Tuesday... If you want to submit questions about this one, I'll do a little live stream at 12 o'clock. Don't worry. I won't note you. I won't identify you in whatever question you might submit. You can. But if you want to go there with any of this, let's talk. 12 o'clock on our website. Submit questions to that email address, and we'll go there. If you don't, that's cool. I'll check the bracket. See how it's going. It is lunchtime. I don't mean to end on a light note. But I do mean to end on a note in which we give thanks for all God's good gifts and ask that we might have his help to steward us against our frailty, our weakness, our confusion, and our impatience. Let's pray. Help us, Father, to see your good gifts.
is that which deserve the greatest care. But help us to see the eyes and the love of Jesus if we have found ourselves weak, confused, desperate, and are fearful to believe you. Help us not live in shame. Help us to live in your love. Help us to take care of that of which you have given unto us and entrusted for our sake and our good. In your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.